Chances are you've seen this video. There's a two-story home propped up on stilts standing on the edge of this pretty dreary beach. A wave rolls in and the house gives way. It's like someone kicked its legs out from under it. You hear onlookers' reactions. And the home, which is thankfully vacant, washes out to sea. The video, shot in the Outer Banks last month, streams like a PSA for climate change. It's both a foreshadowing of what's to come and a marker of the damage that's already been done. After the video went viral, the local National Park Service told news outlets that it wasn't the first collapse this year. The surf had taken another home in February. And the superintendent for the Park Service warned that there would be more casualties to come. But as with most viral content, three weeks later, it's likely that the majority of folks who saw that video have already forgotten it. That selective memory, though, extends past people watching climate change from their smartphones. Many homebuyers have also adopted an out-of-sight, out-of-mind perspective on the climate crisis. Welcome to Deconstruct. I'm Susanna Cavanaugh, your producer, also stepping into host duties for Isabella Farr this week. So as of June 1st, the East Coast has entered hurricane season, and this year is expected to produce storms on par with what we saw when Katrina hit New Orleans in 2005. It's fair to say the threat climate change poses to home ownership on the coasts or in California is well publicized at this point. But has that risk deterred buyers from stepping into those markets? To dig in, I got on a call with Ben Keyes. I'm a professor of real estate and finance at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and I study housing and mortgage markets. In 2020, Ben co-authored a paper titled Neglected No More, Housing Markets, Mortgage Lending, and Sea Level Rise. It looked at how buyers and lenders had responded to the imminence of climate change as information about the threat became more widespread throughout the 2010s. It was interesting. I didn't realize to what extent sea level rise will impact homeowners. I think it's 42% of the U.S. population is located close to a shoreline. So are there parts of the country that are likely to see sea level rise impact them sooner than other parts? Absolutely. You can look to Key West, Florida as an example of that, where rising seas are already disrupting uh, a lot of the roads there. And a number of houses have already been reclaimed by the sea. And actually, the U.S. Navy has produced some really detailed reports on where they expect their bases to be most affected. Places like uh, parts of the Virginia coastline are especially susceptible to some of the earliest indications of rising seas. So the paper you co-authored focuses on coastal Florida. I was wondering if you could give us a sense of the timeline for maybe mainland Florida, so like not the keys so much as when the homeowners, home buyers can expect rising sea levels to have an impact on their house. Yeah, if you think about the the value of a house, you, know, you don't need the water to be inundating the house in order to affect its value. Uh, house prices should be reflecting a long-term path of the value of that house. So say you own a home that you don't expect to be impacted by the climate. You can assess its value by looking at what you'd be able to get if you rented it over the next 30 years, taking into consideration rising prices, inflation. 
If you can only live in or rent that house for 15 years, though, because sea levels will rise and flood the property, you'd assume that that home would market for less money. What we find in the paper is that prior to 2013, there was very little in the way of a sea level rise discount if you want to think about it that way. So parts of uh, the lowest lying communities in Florida, most exposed to to sea level rise, didn't really seem to be priced any differently um, than the rest of coastal Florida. But another metric used to gauge buyer demand was impacted, sales volume. And one of the most striking findings we found was uh, an absolute decline in the number of transactions in these communities. So there's just fewer transactions taking place. I think there are kind of two stories about how climate might affect some of these markets. One story is a, is a rapid resorting story. So now that everyone's aware of climate risks, oh, some people don't like this risk, don't want to bear it. They immediately put their houses on the market. They sell to the people who are willing to bear the risk or who don't believe in the science. Ben compared this reaction to what you see in the stock market. When there's a new report out about you know, an earnings fall by a particular firm, there's a big boom in the number of transactions that might occur as some people respond to that news more aggressively than others. What's different about housing markets is that houses are durable. And because houses are durable, you know, you can wait and essentially, you know, try to see whether this is a real phenomenon. Is this going to have some impact? So more of a hold approach if we're continuing with the equities market analogy. What we saw instead was that rather than seeing a jump in transaction volumes, as there was an increasing awareness of sea level risk and climate risks more generally, we saw the opposite. We saw a decline in transaction volumes in exactly these areas. And so these Properties became very illiquid. And what we show in the paper is uh, that these properties sit on the market longer when they're listed. They're more frequently likely to be a failed sale, so a listing that never actually results in a sale. And for a few years there, sellers continued to list the properties at the same price and were basically having to wait longer and longer to find a buyer. And eventually that stall in the market forces sellers to lower their prices. After 2013, we see a discount in the market. By 2018 or thereabouts, we see about a 5% to 7% discount for those properties that are most affected. Ben likens these market impacts to the media's coverage of climate change in part. In 2013, for example, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issues a report warning that temperatures are on track to exceed two degrees Celsius. In 2015, we get the Paris Agreement. In 2018, Greta Thunberg comes on the scene. And then comes 2020, and you know the rest. You know, what's happened in the housing market due to the pandemic absolutely swamped the effects that we're finding in our paper. With work from home, guess what happens? Coastal living becomes extremely desirable, no matter what the risks look like over the longer term. And so there was an enormous increase in prices uh, during COVID that that basically dwarfed any of the effects that we were seeing prior. Miami became the most expensive housing market in the country in February, surpassing New York. Coincidingly, in 2020, media coverage of global warming dipped as COVID consumed the collective consciousness. I think it's a question of how many different kinds of factors can you hold in your mind at the same time when you're buying a house, right? You're trading off this complicated bundle of goods. First, just, you know, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms? What kind of street is it on? What's the neighborhood like? Are the schools good? Will my kid be safe here? Can I get to work quickly? We just start piling on all of these additional things. Um, You know, where does climate fit in that hierarchy now post-pandemic? What's it going to take for those kind of patterns to reemerge? Something we haven't talked about yet is kind of why 2013? Why do we think that these markets changed at that time? And, And we attribute some of that change to Hurricane Sandy. 
uh, which uh, hit the Northeast rather than Florida, but a lot of um, Florida residents have connections and contacts in, in the Northeast, um, you know, the sort of common migration patterns from New York down to Florida. And so it might take another kind of natural disaster for this to become top of mind, for it to become a salient risk again for these coastal home buyers. The same can be said for California homes that face wildfire risk. Luis Robledo is a real estate agent with Douglas Elliman, who's been selling homes in Malibu and L.A. since 2010. He's worked through 14 of the 20 largest wildfires in the state, and that's based on data that dates back to 1932. During that period, he's watched as markets contract and then bounce back. Let's say there's in a specific area, there's suddenly a major fire. I think for a short period of time, there will be some hesitation. So in 2018, we had this huge fire that devastated the west part of Malibu. That's the Woolsey fire, which destroyed a number of high profile houses, Neil Young's, Gerard Butler's, Miley Cyrus's. At that point, I did speak to a number of clients who decided they didn't want to even consider uh, Malibu anymore because of that. Unfortunately, with a lot of people, memory is extremely short. So it was a very limited time where that was the feeling uh, amongst people. So because of that, again, it really didn't affect prices over the long term, maybe on the short term, a few sales went down. But again, I think the lack of inventory surpasses any concerns that people have about pricing and where they live. California has been dealing with a housing shortage since the 70s. In 2018, it was 49th in the U.S. as far as housing units per resident. That's according to Vox. And the pandemic, like everything else, exacerbated that trend. If you want to live in California, then you're going to have to accept certain things. And that includes, obviously, that most people do get sticker shock. Generally, I mean, we've seen property prices steadily rise between 2011 and 2018. And again, we had some major fires at that time. And then we've had a huge spurt in pricing go since COVID since 2022 now in some areas 30 40 even 50 percent increase in prices so we've still had fires going on during that time I think between 2017 and 2018 insurance losses were up to 25 billion so it's got progressively worse but this has not correlated as far as what's happened with property prices. They've just been going in one direction. The bigger impact, Louis said, has been on insurance premiums. What we're seeing is people having problems with getting insurance for fire. I think insurance companies, as I said, if they had losses of 25 billion, have had to find a way to guard themselves against that. So premiums have increased or people have been dropped. And so the insurance companies are trying to formulate a different plan of, of how to be able to give insurance to people that live close to areas where fires are going to be a major concern. Do you know anything about how they're trying to restructure to be able to offer insurance, but also make sure that they're protected as well? I think the way insurance companies work is they go on a historical basis. They look at a certain area and see that in the past it has had greater issues or concerns of fire. So in those areas, obviously, premiums are going to be higher. I think Malibu is it's a good example where it is very close to nature. Most homes, if they're not on the water, are very isolated. You know, for those people, insurance premiums are very high. What the insurance company wants to go away from is historical events to calculating future events. I think this is how more earthquake insurance is calculated. So now they'll say, well, in the future, it's more likely that X will happen in this area. So that's why we're going to 
be basing our insurance premium on that. So it's more difficult to quantify because it's for a future event, uh, but at the same time, it will allow insurance companies to raise the rates and have a reason for doing so. And something similar is happening with flood insurance. The flood insurance program, the NFIP, uh, which has historically heavily subsidized coastal living in the United States, that the insurance has been underpriced relative to the true risks. And that's you know resulted in enormous deficits for this federal program. They've instituted some significant changes, what's called risk rating 2.0, uh, which have come in over the past year. And I think the, the jury is still out on what impact that will have. Risk rating 2.0, it's pretty complicated. Uh, it's in response to multiple flooding events and climate change and need to have a more realistic flood risk assessment for pricing of flood insurance. So what that means is they're taking into account things like the number of times flooding has happened. This is Christian Salazar. He's the director of communications for the Center for New York City Neighborhoods, which recently launched a tool, Flood Help NY, to help New Yorkers protect their homes during the hurricane season. The National Flood Insurance Program, it's supposed to to be more accurate in determining flood risk. So we expect that some 61% of New Yorkers with flood insurance premiums may see a, an increase in their premiums because of this. So they need to be aware and, and just sort of talk to their flood insurance agent about this. But while insurance is finally waking up to the threat of climate change, the mortgage market is not. Those are sort of the two critical markets to try to understand what's going on. And the mortgage side, we just don't see any evidence of lenders changing their behavior depending on this risk. We don't see them pricing it. We don't see them requiring a larger down payment. The refinancing volumes are exactly the same. So there's no differential ability to get access to a refinancing loan. The mortgage market is tricky because, you know, lenders are really insulated from this risk and they're insulated in in two key ways. One is that they're offloading a lot of these loans to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, So they're selling the loans through securitization. They're not sitting on local banks' balance sheets. And, And what that means is that banks don't have to incorporate this future default risk that might be related to climate. And the other is the National Flood Insurance Program, which is just now starting to price in risk. And then the question is, what fills that? that void when basically the private market determines that a property is not insurable or is no longer insurable. So I think when buyers are looking at a property, they're going to say, well, can I take out a mortgage and can I get insurance? And the problem is that the insurance policy is an annual policy. And so you need to make sure that the insurer is going to come back year after year and be willing to insure that property. And I think that's where we're going to see a lot of action in the coming years as insurers uh, leaving some of these markets and saying, we're just not willing to bear this risk. And at that point, then either you're, you know, stuck self-insuring your property, which is an enormous risk for any household to bear, or you're going to rely on some sort of state program or federal program that's going to have to be created to, to fill that gap. All right, that's it for us this week. Isabella will be back next Monday with an episode on the sweetheart sector of the pandemic, logistics, and whether all that demand is starting to ease. Until next time.